stories that Jesus used that are earthly stories, but they carry um, significant spiritual truth. And we've been working our way through, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 35 or 40 parables. We're not going to do all of them, uh, but we are going to do some of them. So we're going to do, uh, we've done a few weeks of these, we've got a couple more weeks of studying this. And the question might have come up of, why did he speak this way? Why does he use parables to communicate and to tell people about his kingdom. So there's really something beautiful to learn about even why he spoke in parables and, and there's something powerful behind that that reveals human nature and how we can understand God. So many times his listeners in that time, they were, uh, he was a Jewish man in an occupied country, it was Roman occupied country. Um, and so his truth had to be somewhat, it had to be very subversive. It had to be underground and it could only, it had to be communicated in a way that people who were who were even mildly curious, would listen and, and dive into and explore the depths of what he was saying. And, the, and a lot of times he would use parables to conceal what he was saying to, to uh, people who were you know, pretty involved in the government or who had hardened hearts, who were you know, full of power. Um, so like the Pharisees or um, you know, the Romans were constantly listening to what he was saying to see if he was stirring up trouble, to see if he, would, he was claiming to be uh, an authority figure, because that would be a big no-no in an occupied country. And so they, he had to use subversive storytelling to communicate. And so people who were open to what he was saying would listen carefully and explore and ask questions. And people who were hardened or not interested in him as any type of authority figure, they would just, it wouldn't make much sense to them. It would just kind of go over their head or bounce off. You know, it bounces off arrogant hearts or hardened hearts. And so he would use these parables a lot of times. And so it, it gives us a glimpse. And he, he, he speaks to this in Mark chapter 4. So that's where we're going to start as to why he speaks in parables. So Mark chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 10 through 12 here. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So he's quoting Isaiah there, uh, one of the prophets from the Old Testament. And Isaiah was talking about how when sin hardens people's hearts, they, they lose the ability to hear truth. And you, we all know someone like that. And you might be like, that's me right now, because <laughs> we all have moments like that, where we have hardened ourselves to a certain message that Christ is going to deliver to us. And he's talking about, he's like, this is why I speak in parables, because you have to have a soft heart to understand them, and they're, they're very subversive in nature. So if you're full of pride or, or, and, and prejudice, not the book, like the sins, that's what I'm talking about, like if, you, if you've got that in your heart, you're going to have an inability to receive the truth of the parables that Jesus is delivering. So I want to explore the hardness that might, we might have, because I think we all have it uh, in certain spots of our minds and hearts or in certain seasons or certain moments. We are not receptive to what Jesus has to say. And it's, a little, it's probably somewhat different than it was 2,000 years ago, although um, we're still dealing with the same type of sinful tendencies that they were. Uh, but there's a few specific um, items or, or similarity or cultural phenomenons that I want to explore 
Uh, I want to explore fundamentalism because I think it's something that people uh, are inherently gravitating towards in our culture, and not just religious people, but this is also what atheists and humanists and agnostics are, are, are gravitating towards. Um, I find a lot of similarities between religious fundamentalists and atheists. That might sound weird, but we're going to explore the similarities. So I've got to define what fundamentalism is because this is what is hardening the hearts to the power and to the truth and the grace of, of Christ when he's delivering these parables. So the number one, uh, there, this specific quality of fundamentalism that both religious people subscribe to and the other side of the you know, non-believers have a tendency to subscribe to is this us versus them mentality. All right, they typically, people in either one of these camps identify people or people groups as the cause for problems in the world or in the culture, or in my life. Like, they are to blame. And there's a lot of finger pointing, and there's a lot of verbal grenades that are thrown back and forth. And they, they participate and involve themselves in this us versus them mentality. In the case of humanists, it's usually the desire to save others from religion or religious people. Religion is viewed as some sort of purge uh, or evil upon the earth. And in the case of religious fundamentalists, they blame, like, the liberals, the media. They pretty much blame everybody, all right? They just kind of point the finger at everybody and say, it's all your fault, all this bad stuff. And they, and they have a tendency to, to just go back and forth. So us versus them. If, you, if people, and we've all done it, participate in an us versus them mentality, if we point the finger of blame, we are participating and we are taking the bait of Satan. His name literally means accuser. And so when we are accusing someone, we are, we are basically acting like Satan would. We have, we have come under the influence of evil, and we are allowing it to, to harden us to the love and the truth of Christ, where he talks about, you love me and you love others. He says stuff like, love your enemies. So that's one characteristic of fundamentalism. Another one would be a desire for control and rights over our own circumstances. So fundamentalists... Like religious fundamentalists gravitate towards rules and laws. They're constantly pointing out violations of this to other people. Like, oh, Scripture says this. And they, they love to use the Bible as a weapon. They love it. They love to smack people over the head with that or use it as some sort of rule book or manual for life. So they gravitate towards pragmatism and these rigid to-do lists and, and tasks in order to accomplish God. They want control over their faith. And then humanists gravitate towards, I'm my own God. I'll make my own rules for my life. All right, it's no accident um, that I think it's around 85% of atheists in the U.S. are white because it is a religion of privilege. I am my own God. I, I don't need God. I've created, you know, it's manifest destiny. I, I've created my own heaven. Why would I need God? I make my own rules. We have the education, the money, the, the tools, the privilege. And so both sides you can go to the extreme and, and gravitate towards fundamentalism. So sociological studies show that. People in our country are going further away from each other in their belief systems. People are sliding more. There's more people sliding towards the, the religious nuns, and that is becoming a religion. Because atheists don't like God. They want church. There are atheist churches. They want community. They just don't want God. Gravitating. They don't want religion. They don't want him in, informed in it. So people are gravitating towards that, and people are gravitating towards religious fundamentalism. 
All right, people are, you can see this in some of like the prominent evangelical leaders right now who are kind of like grasping for footholds of influence in our culture. Like we actually, as Christians, we actually need those. Christ didn't, but we do for some reason. Uh, we, we don't think we can change people and bring more heaven to earth without uh, the right po- you know, person in political office. So you see this happening. A perfect example of this playing out for like this, which it's seemingly, it's very surreal, seems like it might be like a, a drama, but it's actually happening, is our presidential election season right now. This is, do you ever think like, this is real? This is actually happening in, front of, in, my, in the country that I live in. I'm going to be in Greece during the election. I'm so excited. <laughs> Certain things play out. I might not come back. I'll just tell <laughs> Carrie and the kids to come over. Um, but we're seeing that divide and that, vol- like, that hatred and this volatility towards one another. And it's like this increasing divide. I'm like, what is happening? So we see this playing out. People gra- gravitating towards one kind of fundamentalism and people's hearts are hardened to the other group of people and it's just this back and forth that's really toxic and really sad to see um so let's be real i mean all of us have a little a little of that in us i definitely have moments where i want to be a humanist where i want to make my own rules and run my life the way i see fit i definitely have moments where i i judge people like and i say stuff out loud to my wife and i'm like is that judgmental and she's like yep so I know I'd have those moments. I say it at least once a week. I'm judgmental towards someone who's breaking what I think is a pretty important law or rule or edit, you know, rule of etiquette. So I, I, gravita- I, I know I have moments of fundamental, fundamentalism in me. So if that's you, this is your recovery group. This is our recovery group from either one of those extremes and Jesus is at the center and we are pursuing him, and, and today we get the opportunity of hearing um, his words, hopefully, land on soft soil. So the reason I start that way is because we need to kind of like be prepared to receive subversive, symbolic, deep spiritual truth. And if we're not softened and ready to admit like, and, and kind of open our hands up with some things we might be holding on to tightly, we're not going to receive everything that he wants to say. So that's, that's the point of parables and, and also being aware of like, okay, where might my mind and my heart be hardened to the truth and the grace of Christ? Um, it sounds tough. It sounds like, you know, when we start talking about letting go of some stuff and, and letting Christ change the way we live, there will be moments where you're like, I don't like the sound of that, but it's actually a path towards incredible freedom. All right, when we f- listen to his words and we imitate him and we follow his actions, it will lead to freedom, and all kinds of other good things. And we're going to get into that. So let's read um, our first parable, or let's read the parable that we're going to study today. It's Matthew chapter 25. And I have a page number. uh, Page 694 is where we're starting. If you've been in church at all ever, uh, you might have heard this before. It's, It's a fairly popular parable. So Matthew 25, and we're going to read verses 14 through 30. Uh, I think I'm on the wrong, yeah, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Okay, here we go. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. 
To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. It's actually not, uh, the proper translation is not gold, it's talents. Um, so keep that in mind when I say gold, it's actually uh, talents. I'll talk about what that is. So one he gave five bags of gold, another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of talents gained two more. The man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of talents came. Uh, master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of talents from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ooh, a little blunt. Um, a talent, so it's not in there, but that's actually uh, the, the proper translation. A talent is a certain weight of money. And uh, there are ranging theories as to how much it was worth, but the consensus is a lot. It's a lot of money. Um, typically, way more than an average person would make in like five to ten years. Like a massive amount of money. That, that he is giving, that he is entrusting his servants with. Uh, the master in the story is symbolic of Christ. All right, we have two relationships with God. We have a covenant relationship with him and we have a kingdom relationship with him. Covenant relationship with God is we are his son or his daughter. All right, uh, the Hebrew word for that that we call him is Abba, which means daddy. So it's that type of intimacy that we have. The other relationship we have with him is a kingdom relationship. Uh, we are his servant. We have the opportunity to be like the people in the story where we can serve his interests and his glory. And it is also an incredible relationship to participate in. And that's what this parable is speaking to, is the kingdom relationship that we have with God. Um, we are his servants, and he has given us a lot. We've been entrusted with multiplying what he brought when he came from heaven to earth. And some of the key aspects of our faith that were introduced when Jesus came. So, this, so a list of... Okay, what, what do you mean, like, what do we multiply that Jesus brought? So let's just, a real cursory level, here's some of the things Jesus did that we have the opportunity to multiply because he's given us the ability and the time and the treasure and all the things we need to be able to multiply them. Uh, some of the stuff he brought, sacrificial love. All right, so that kind of goes against what I was saying earlier where everybody's 
fighting each other and, and people are hating their enemies or attacking their enemies, whether it's physically or verbally, all right, we, Christians, believe in sacrificial love. So rather than kill our enemy, we would die for our enemy. Just like Jesus died on the cross. It is the single greatest bridge builder that humanity has ever known. It is the most incredible act that's, that we've ever seen or that human history has ever seen or witnessed. And it's something that continues to play out. Like more people live that way and multiplied this posture and this of sacrificial love, the world would be a better place. So the, the divide would decrease. More heaven would come to earth. We also operate by a completely different rule and rhythm to life. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, this is Jesus like coming out sermon, like polit- Sermon on the Mount. This is his politics. This is like, if you want to follow me, this is what my kingdom is. This is where I'm taking you. This is what my, how my kingdom is going to operate. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it looks nothing like American politics. It looks radically different in both uh, method that it's instituted and the actual beliefs and the tenets of our politics. The Christian faith just operates completely differently. And if more, and obviously we're biased, I'm a Christian, I think if more people lived this way, more heaven would come to earth. Divides would shrink. Walls would come down or never be built. Um, Just a little reference to some of our politics that are being touted right now. And then unconditional love. All right, the fact, you know, Jesus brought this love that is unending and constantly pursuing, and there's no, there's nothing you can do to lose it. What if there are more human beings who lived that way, who loved constantly with no conditions and no offense? We just kept loving people, all right? We had the opportunity to multiply that type of love, or it's a love that just constantly forgives others and pursues others, no matter what is happening. And then healing, he brought healing. Physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. If you are around Jesus, healing occurred. And we have that. We do not believe that is dead. We believe that healing still, still happens in so many different ways and methods. And so it's something, uh, another word for that would be restoration. We believe that Christ is constantly restoring us, our relationships. It's just a constant thing that we have an opportunity to participate in and multiply. We have the ability to do that as well because we have his spirit living within us. So we are Christ's servants and we are given different amounts of talents to multiply these wonderful things that Jesus brought. And we are all given different amounts of different talents. So we can, the reason I want to use the word talents is because that we can think of talent as, you know, a currency. We can also think of it as ability and spiritual gifts and personality. And we've, we've been given all this these different types of personalities because we can multiply what he's given us. So it's important to remember a critical point from this parable. All right, the master gives his money to his servants. It never is theirs. And there's that, that's a, a countercultural belief that every, Christians believe everything that we have is not ours. It's Jesus's. It's God's. All of it. Every last second cent ability, uh, relationship, person in our life is his. And he loves them more than we could. So we believe that's part of our theology. So like when my kids are fighting over a toy or don't want to share something with their people, I'm like, it's not your toy. They're like, it's mine. I'm like, no, it's technically, theologically, it's not. And they just look at me like, what the? 
are you talking about, you weirdo? But we believe that. That is what we believe. And it's an incredible parenting technique. Like, it's not yours. Problem solved. They don't believe me yet. But everything we have that we've been given is not ours. So it's meant for God and for others. It is, it, it, we are meant to multiply what is not ours. So it's a, it's a, a really you know, interesting belief and that our theology should inform our methodology, like how we live. So if we believe that everything's not ours, we should live like that. It's kind of a critical part of our faith. So let's talk about three areas. So I'm going to do something that I say I never do. So you can call me out later. I'm going to make three points that all start with the same letter. So just forgive me. I, I don't like doing that because I usually think that kind of stuff's cheesy. Um, and you, you've, you've probably heard some of this stuff before, but... The reason I gave you that little spiel before, you may have heard this before, but it may not have landed on soft soil, or you may have forgotten it. And maybe, maybe you've heard this before, and you were soft to it then, but you've hardened since, and you need to be reminded. Because I'm, I'm looking at this parable, I'm like, oh, geez, every time. Well, pretty much any time I speak, I'm like, how am I supposed to preach on this when I'm not living this? So it's a challenge to me. So the first thing that God gives us, all right, and there... And there there's, I'm going to talk about three things. There's more than that, but I'm going to focus on these three things. The first thing that he's given us an abundance of is time. He has given us, uh, and that's one thing we all kind of have the same amount of, all right? Can't really change the hours in the day or the days in the year. We don't have that ability. So we all have that time that he's given us, and um, we, have to be, uh, we have to aggressively schedule and protect time with God and with people, all right, that, that we have to be strategic about that. Uh, I think sometimes we just enjoy the, the rhythm of busyness so much that we just kind of go with it. We have no, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I have a really hard time saying no. Like, no, I can't do that. No, I can't make it. It's really difficult for me to say that because I want to say yes to everything. But we have to be strategic. We have to have a good rhythm. And our church collectively and Individually, we try to keep a rhythm that we call up and out. So we try to spend time up with God. Like we have time, prayer time, scripture, worship, um, just, just like restful time where we are intentionally dwelling on his presence, whether that's in community or individually. Uh, so that's up and then in is time together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Like it is important to be around other Christians because that is where God is. He strengthens our faith in community. And then out on mission, all right, engaging and developing relationships with people who don't know God or who really need his love in their life, and they may not even verbalize it. They don't, they may not even like God, but they like you, and we call that a person of peace. If you feel chemistry with someone, that's not an accident. God is telling us to spend time pursuing that person for friendship, and not in a conditional, like, bait-and-switch way where, like, at some point, we're going to surprise them with Jesus. We don't do that. All right? They're going to know we're a Christian. We are not friends with them because we just want to tell them about Jesus. And if they don't come along, we're like, okay, we're out of here. That's not how we roll. We, we are friends with them because we are friends with them, because we like them, because we love them, and we spend time with them. So up, in, and out. And also, when it comes to time, be aware of real pressure and perceived pressure. When you think of like deadlines, stuff that's got to get done, there's a real, there, there are some commitments you have that involve real pressure like okay that's got to get done all right like i got to pay my mortgage that's important 
to meet that deadline because then bad things might happen if you don't. Uh, but there's a lot of other stuff that's perceived pressure that we tie to others' expectations or to unrealistic expectations that we have about what needs to happen, what needs to get done. All right? And when you, when you fall victim to perceived pressure and you let that control you, it just ratchets up the stress and you, you, your, your time, your, your ability to multiply that and, ha and keep a good rhythm, it gets thrown all out of whack. So make sure you understand what is real and what is perceived pressure when it comes to how you spend your time. Uh, as a parent, uh, my boys are getting involved in sports, and I, I'm kind of pressure of how much time they should spend playing sports. And I, I'm kind of a jock. Like, I play a lot of sports, but the, the amount of time that, our, that our, um, our culture says we need to spend playing sports and how valuable they are is perceived. It is not realistic. I, I don't want my kids to eat, sleep, and, and breathe baseball. That is not how I want them to operate now or down the road. So that's just an example of perceived pressure of cultural expectations about how we spend our time. Then there's his gift. Um, we're going to use it in the like, ability sense, not in the currency. God has given us abilities and talents. Um, many of you have a wonderful education. All right, remember that degree you earned is not yours, it's his. All right, just going back to our theological foundation. Um, and it's really cool to see, in particular, there's a lot of people in here I see who are using your gifts to bless other people, your education, your degree, your, your uh, experience in, uh, with humanity or with uh, social work or you know, these types of things. I see people in our church all the time see a need and they know oh, I have experience in that area or I have education in that area and I can, I can help. I can do something like that. And so a perfect example of that would be Claim, like the nonprofit pro bono law clinic that meets in the living room. It's made up, it was started by Restore members who are attorneys and they're thinking, we can bless people twice a month and give them free law, you know, um, legal advice. And that is a uh, critical piece to delivering advocacy and justice in people's lives. And so it's a perfect example uh, of our friends who are using their abilities to bless other people. Uh, our missional community uh, is participating in a, the wraparound program at a wider circle, which is an organization that wants to lift people out of poverty. And we have a group of people who have wrapped around uh, a person uh, in Silver Spring who is uh, wanting to travel this journey of getting out of poverty and, and finding good job and education and there's oh, I mean hundreds of people who are participating in this program and it's really cool to see people using their education and their experience and their ability to wrap around people in a family type of environment and walk with them through life uh, and to deliver you know good uh, things happening um, because people are doing that um, but you got to remember too the best part of our faith is Jesus so we can use our ability to deliver justice and advocacy and empathy. But remember in the parable, they, they multiply, they, they share what they, 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 they've taken, what they've been given and used it, but they always return to the master. Jesus is always the end point. All right? Social justice is not the end point for Christianity. All right? Jesus is. We use justice to guide people towards Christ. He is the end point. He is where total restoration occurs. Every ounce of it, through and through. 
So we're always returning to our master with these people that have uh, entered our lives and we might be using our abilities to advocate for or, or deliver just to everything we do should lead back to him and lead others to him with us. He's the point of our faith. He's the end of the journey. Um, I would love to, I wish I knew all of your talents and abilities and I could just start calling them out by name in here. I don't. Um, and even, you know, you could take like four or five different personality tests and I'm still, we're still not going to know everything that God has given you and blessed you with. But I do know one thing that everybody in the room has the ability to do. And it's, for some reason, it tends to freak people out. Pray with people. You all have the ability to pray with people. You may not have, like, the perfect, like, four or five sentences to deliver to people to explain your faith. Like, that, you know, I'm not a big fan of prepackaged Christianity like that. I am a fan of praying for people. And I'm, I'm saying praying with them. You know, if someone who trusts you and starts sharing stuff about their life to you, uh, I, I've literally never been told no in those moments when I asked someone if I could pray with them. It's never happened. And I'm not the guy that stands on the street corner and just tries to pray for everybody who's walking by. Uh, so maybe I would be told no if I did that. But when I'm in a relationship with people, I've never been told no. They will receive prayer, and it's the perfect way to introduce Jesus to them. To bring them into his presence is to pray with them in that moment. So we all have that talent. And then treasure. Uh, if you have a household income in the $70,000 range, you are in the richest 0.1% of the entire world. That's amazing to think about. We got people in our culture who are whining about the richest 1%. I just be like, you're rich too. All right, we're all filthy rich for the most part in the U.S. $70,000 income, richest 0.1% of people in the world. If you rent or own in Montgomery County, you probably make that much money. All right, if you live in Montgomery County, it's kind of hard not to, um, to, get, to get close to that as a household income. Uh, placing ourselves in the parables, we are the first servant monetarily. We have been given the most money. A lot more money than most people have in the world. So that's something to think about. He has entrusted us with more. What are you doing with that? What, how are you using that massive blessing to multiply these amazing kingdom qualities of like unconditional love, the politics of Jesus, sacrificial love? How, how are you using that money to multiply those characteristics of the kingdom? Because that's what it can be used for. Um, a solid percentage, biblically, it's not a rule or a law, but a solid percentage, it seems to be kind of like the, the minimum to consider is 10%. Give away 10% of what you have, of what God's given you. And it's not giving it away. It's an investment. For we believe what the parable says, we are investing that money in someone or something that we believe in. And it will be multiplied particularly if you're in tune with the Spirit and you identify someone or something that you believe in to give to, giving away 10%. So my hope, I mean, not that I'm biased, uh, but I would hope you would consider Restore Church as an entity to support financially because uh, I believe in what God's doing in this place. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's me challenging you to consider that. However, if you're not into this whole God, church, Jesus thing, or if you're not so sure about this church yet, I would challenge you to find someone or something you do believe in. You don't get off. 
All right, you don't, you don't get off in the parable of giving your, your money away, of investing it in the lives of other people through an individual gift or through an organization. Find someone or something that you believe in and invest in it in a radically countercultural way. Uh, I think the average investment that most Americans give is like 3% of their income away. Carrie and I give 11% of our income away this year. Gross income, all right? We give it away before Uncle Sam gets it. Um, it's important that we invest what we've been given in the lives of other people. Um, there are amazing people and organizations to give to, uh, and our master has entrusted us to invest it wisely. Um, we probably run the range in this room on whether or not you've heard some of this stuff before. All right, that whole time, talent, treasure thing, the parable, maybe you've heard that before. before. But here's one of the critical factors of our faith. That's, it's not just to study God, but to experience God. And one of my favorite theologians is a Canadian pastor. He looks more like a rock star than a, than a pastor. He's an, uh, his name is Bruxy Cavey. Is that a name or what? Bruxy says, first century Christians experienced God and changed the world. And 21st century Christians study God and change our profile pics. All right? Something happens, some injustice happens in the world. We're like, well, I've got to change my profile pic. I've got to put that special filter on there so everybody knows I care. <laughs> so we, we, we think an investment of social media is going to change lives. It's, it's experiencing God. All right? If you've grown up in church, you've studied the Bible. Are you living it out? Are you putting yourself in the story and imitating what you see Jesus do and what he says? And, and are you following what he's done? And I've been God. And I got to admit, I, uh, I've, I was baptized when I was 10. I've been a Christian for 27 years. I don't really feel like I started... I, I didn't start experiencing God until my late teens. And even then, it was like 75, 80% just following rules and doing like, I studied stuff or someone told me something, like, oh, yeah, I'll follow that. There was no experience to it. It was just like, these are the expectations. And just over the last 10 or 15 years, my, my level of actually experiencing God has increased dramatically. And it has opened up my mind and my heart to an, a completely different reality. To, to literally experiencing more and more heaven on earth of what it's actually like, what it's going to be like when, when Christ reigns, the good, true, and perfect king who says what he means, does what he says, and it's perfect, and everybody loves it. It's good news. And I've just, just begun to experience God more and more. So with your time, experience the power of working for God as his servant, like using what he's given you and working for him and trying to um, expand his kingdom to other people, but also enjoying your covenant relationship with him, like Sabbath and rest and, and prayer and, and, and cutting and protecting time in your schedule to just dwell on God. It sounds so mystical and maybe weird and not pragmatic. It has been the most pragmatic thing I've ever done. It is to rest and dwell in the presence of God. It's just miraculous what happens when you engage and just dwell in the presence of God and you protect the time for that. And then your talent, experience the freedom and the warmth that comes with um, pointing people towards Jesus. 
It doesn't get any, like when it comes to like the kingdom side of thing and, and using our abilities to bless other people, it doesn't get any better than leading them in the ways of Christ. And you can do that before they even believe in him. Because the qualities of Christ are magnetic. People like them even though they don't really know what they're experiencing. And then our treasure, experiencing the freedom and the warmth that comes with radical generosity of believing every cent that you have get, been given is not yours and you just have been entrusted to invest it in others. Like that, there's incredible freedom and in not clinging and holding on to something that we perceive to be ours. It's not ours, it's his. And to invest that wisely and to be radically generous with our money. And it also, it's good, it's a good antidote to developing any type of love of money. When you're constantly giving it away, you, you just lose this ability to cling to it and tie emotions to it because it's not yours. And that constant giving it away uh, keeps you from holding on to it because it's always flying out of your hand and, and into the lives of others. Experience God. And there's one other experience I want you to consider. Um, we have our baptism celebration next Sunday. It's one of the few acts of Christianity that we can witness. A lot of times we don't see visually when God is moving. It happens. But it, it's, baptism is one of those physical movements that we get to see someone ad admit, I want to follow Christ. And maybe you've been doing that for years and you've just never been baptized by immersion, like dunked. All right? We, we would love to do that. I would love for you to consider that as we do that next Sunday. I know we have a few people that are considering that. Jesus did it. He told us to do it. And in Scripture, every time we see someone follow him, they were baptized. And it's just an, a sacred part uh, of our faith and an incredible part of the journey of pursuing Christ. So I hope you'll consider that as well. If you have questions about that, put that on your connection card. Um, it's one of many ways to experience God. Let's pray.